What is shaking, Fire Nation? And welcome to another audio masterclass of Entrepreneurs on Fire. And this time, we're talking about something that a lot of people don't want to talk about, specifically in a little place called Silicon Valley. And that's why I'm bringing to you the ex-CEO, the founder of SEO Moz, better known as just Moz, that's Rand Fishkin. He came on the show way, way back in 2012 and talked about his company and it's grown leaps and bounds since then. But there's a really unknown secretive side to running a Silicon Valley startup that he really talks in depth about in his book, Lost and Founder. And of course, we talk about in the episode today. So you are not going to want to miss this fire nation. And we're going to dive in with Rand when we get back from thanking our sponsor. Fire Nation, it's time to take control over your income. To do that, you need to have the skills to solve a serious problem in the marketplace, like helping businesses acquire more customers. That is a skill that most companies don't know how to do profitably because they don't teach it in schools. My friend Billy Jean is a master when it comes to acquiring customers for all sorts of businesses and has charged up to $30,000 a month to provide this simple but not easy service. To learn how you can do this too, visit Watch billysvideo.com to access his free training today. So Rand, say what's up to Fire Nation and share something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Absolutely. Uh, John, thank, thank you for having me and thanks to everyone at yeah. Fire Nation for listening. I really appreciate it. Something that people don't know about me, uh, I'm actually kind of crazy for animals. Uh, a lot of times when we go on vacation, I'll try and pick someplace where, you know, we're out in the middle of a rainforest or something and I can spend hours just watching for, you know, frogs and lizards and birds. And um, it's weird because I live in a city and I mostly travel to cities, but I think I have that from childhood where my parents had a giant forest out back of their house, you know, middle, lived in the middle of nowhere, didn't really have a lot of friends out there and, you know. Dude, in the forests and looked at animals. You need to come visit me in Puerto Rico sometime. I'm telling you, I have this killer trail path <clears throat> right behind my house, and I go on it. It's like a dirt path, and I, I honestly feel like I'm entering Jurassic Park every time I do that. And I actually tell Kate when I leave, I'm like, "Hey, babe, I'm going to run with the iguanas because literally, I like I'm running, and there's just iguanas running next to me, and I'm like, "What's up, guys? Like, I have names for them. It's pretty funny." <laughs> oh my god, that sounds like heaven. I, I, I would love to do that. Invitation accepted. Yes, I love it. So fire. Something I'm going to tell you that you might not know about Rand as well that we were actually chatting about in the pre-interview is unless you're like the most faithful of all Fire Nation faithful and you've listened to every episode, it has been 2018 episodes since Rand last joined us back on episode 15, 15, which means Rand that I had, I had written you down as one of my power 20 that I called it back then where I sat down and I listed out 20 people who were my dream first 20 people to interview. And I got yeses from all of them. So I got to interview these 20 people and, and anybody in that first 20 was on my power 20. And so I, wow. I interviewed you before I even launched the show. And now you're episode 2033. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I love it. Oh, Fire Nation. So go back and listen to that episode. You'll have a lot of fun. Episode 15. And today's audio masterclass is going to be awesome. And I'm really excited for a number of reasons. And we're going to be talking about how Silicon Valley pressures startups to do a lot of dumb stuff. And it is so true. And that's why, as I mentioned in the intro, 
Rand's book, which is incredible, by the way, you know, Lost and Founder, which we'll be talking about a little bit today. So Rand, give us a little preview about what we should be expecting from this masterclass. Sure. Yeah. So broadly speaking, I think that Silicon Valley's um, mostly venture-backed model has been the pinnacle of what startups try to achieve. And many, many entrepreneurs, whether they realize it or not, whether we realize it or not, I should say, um, fall into this trap of reading about and hearing about you know, the incredibly impressive companies of Silicon Valley and the venture capital model. And because it gets so much press and attention and so much popular culture attention and, and media attention, uh, I think it it influences us, it pressures us into doing things like they do them. And that is not necessarily wise or the right move. And there's a lot of things inherent in the venture model and in the Silicon Valley classic startup model that are not right for every other kind of startup. And yet we all try to shoehorn ourselves into it. That's what I want to talk about. Oh, I mean, there's so many things in your book that just really kind of made like my hair stand up on my back because I'm like, oh my God, I just love when people speak the truth and they're open and they're honest and they're transparent. And one thing I just want to share right off the bat is something that really just kind of made me was like, Kate, you got to look at this. You got to read this. I mean, you know, this is a guy that's finally just sharing what's actually going on is you're like, you're like, listen, like, yes, like I found it. And, you know, for a long time was a CEO of this company that was $45 million of revenue a, a year. And so everybody thinks that I'm like this, you know, decamillionaire, if not, you know, even, even more and like hitting me up for million dollar loans and stuff like that. And you're like, dude, like I live with my wife in a two bedroom apartment in downtown Seattle. And, you know, I've never made more than $167,000 a year as my actual salary for what I do. Yes, of course, I own a percentage of the company. So if and when it goes public, like I'll be able to take that. But it's like, I'm not living this, you know, yacht life. Like I'm not living this baller <laughs> lifestyle. I'm living a real person lifestyle with real person problems because that's what I'm doing. And just want to say thank you off the top for, for sharing stuff oh, like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, my, um, you know, my salary when I left Moz was... Uh, $205,000 a year, which is a phenomenal salary. Like that's a, that's a wonderful salary. You, you make a lot of money, but you don't qualify as an accredited investor, right? So when someone says, hey, will you invest in my startup? You know, you say, oh, I'm sorry. I have to, you know, jointly with, with my wife, Geraldine, we'd have to be making, I think it's three hundred and fifty or $400,000 a year, or we'd have to have assets worth, you know, more than a million dollars that doesn't count a primary residence. So I can't, I can't do that, right? Um, and uh, they're that like, what? Is, yeah, yeah. They're sort of like, wait a minute. You know, Moz is <laughs> what at a fifty million dollar right. run rate, and you own you know twenty three percent of it or whatever. What what's going on? Why don't I thought you would have money? Eh, sorry. Yeah, you know, this is the reality. I make really good money, but you know, I, do. I don't I have like just money coming out of my ears, or you know, I'm not actually yeah. realizing fifty million dollars a year of that fifty million dollar a year run rate. Well, and I think the biggest thing is I want to I want to compare and contrast that with people who think that oh, the product business is so sexy, right? The venture back product business so sexy. You get to these tens of millions of dollars of revenue. That's amazingly exciting versus consulting, for example, right? A services-based business um, where many of my friends are, right? Many of my friends are in the, the SEO or web marketing consulting world. And, you know, they sort of, they look, uh, they look like they're staring and they think the grass is greener on the other side. Uh, but in fact, many of them are absolutely out earning me 
and many of them have much greater wealth because their businesses, you know, if they make $2 million in profit one year, they could decide to just take that $2 million off the table, Yeah, right? They can just pay themselves that money. That is a huge difference between, you know, Moz made, you know, four and a half million dollars in profit last year. But that just goes back in the business, right? Right, and and will until there's an exit. And I want to talk more about that in a minute because I think that's so important and so key. And maybe talk about some specific examples. But first, I really just want to talk about this topic because you know we as entrepreneurs, we all hear about the MVP. Like everybody's like mm-hmm. chanting MVP, minimally MVP. viable product, minimally viable product. Go lean, pivot, pivot. It's amazing. And guess what? It is great in some areas, and maybe it's not so great in others. So we can't just paint this broad brushstroke. And that's why I want you to take a second and share with us why MVPs can really stink sometimes. Well, I think the big problem is when we as consumers, you know, whether we're we're in our business and we're buying a business to business product or whether we're consumers and we're buying a, a product for consumers, when we buy a product or try a product or a service, um, the following never happens. We never go, oh, you know, this is a pretty crappy version of this thing that I want, but I guess I can see how if they keep iterating on it and making it better in six months or a year or a couple of years, it'll be really, really good. No, no consumer has ever thought that way. Mm. You, get a sh- you get a crappy product and you think this is a crappy product. This company makes crappy, crappy products, products. <laughs> and your brand gets burned, right? Your brand gets, gets hurt. Now, look, if you're a very tiny startup, absolutely entirely brand new, and your only customers are the you know seven or eight people in your network that you're sort of testing things out with, fine, no problem to, to launch an MVP, right? Because it's only a handful of people who have told you they found the product valuable enough and want to use it, and then you're going to be iterating on it for them. And as you grow your product's quality, you'll be growing your brand as well. So that works fine. But if you're already a well-known brand, or you have thousands of people in your audience, or tens of thousands of people, right? Or you're a well-known entrepreneur, or you've been making products for you know years. You launch something that's that's kind of crappy and minimally viable, just barely gets the job done, and people start to associate your brand with they make crappy products. And Moz, we did this. We did this many, many, many times. We kept having that. Hey, I, this is the thing our customers want. Well, let's make an MVP of that thing and launch it, and then we'll iterate until we get to the thing that our customers want. And that burned our brand so many times that I think people actually came to have this association in the SEO software world that Moz made sort of, eh, you know, they're for like the beginner and and intermediate SEOs. But if you're an expert, you're going to use something better. Um, And that even when our products got to be expert level, even when they got great. we couldn't convince people, right? That brand bias stuck with us. So that's the problem with MVPs. Fire Nation, I mean, what are we if we're not our brand? I mean, what we stand for. I mean, what people say when we're not in the room. And I love that Warren Buffett quote that it takes 20 years to build a reputation of five minutes to ruin it. I mean, you know, Moss could have gone five years just, you know, launching the best of the best and all this great stuff and have this cool reputation. But then, you know, they launched like one real stinker where they just really let everybody down. And that that doesn't go away right away. Like that stink kind of stays. That There's residue there. It takes time to earn that trust and that faith back. And you see a lot of companies 
do that. And I mean, you know, why do some of the big companies change their names? Because they drop some yeah. stinkers and they're yeah. like, you know, Equifax. Yeah. Okay. Like, what are we going to do now? Let's just change our name. And, you know, everybody can pretend like it never happens. And Rand, one thing, you know, that people are always chanting that we just mentioned, you know, is MVP. And we just kind of talked a little bit about why that works maybe in some scenarios, but not in all scenarios. So really think yeah. about that. People are also chanting scale, leverage, only do things that scale, don't trade time for money, all these different things. That's all we hear these days. And you teased this a little bit earlier. We got a little bit into it, but let's dive deeper as to why, from your perspective, a services business might actually be better in in a lot of ways than this quote unquote scalable product business. Yeah, sure. So this is one of those areas of entrepreneurship where I think uh, Silicon Valley startup thinking and venture capital thinking has really biased a lot of our thinking as entrepreneurs. We are always trading time for money. There is there is no alternative. Now, some of our time over time may, may get more valuable, right? We can charge higher prices for our time or we get paid more for our time as our business grows. But don't don't fool yourself into thinking that there is this magical, oh, I can... You know, I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm going to make money while I sleep and actually make money while I sleep works because that's the only time you're making money and not working as an entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) So true. (laughs) Right. But, but all the rest of it is trading time for dollars. And so there's, there's almost this silly logic inherent in the idea that uh, I am not doing that if I build a product business. Maybe you'll get more scale, maybe you'll get more leverage, but it almost always takes a lot more um, a lot more upfront cost, both to acquire customers for product business and to deliver uh, a product before you have customers for it, right? You're investing in R&D and in building and then in iterating on that product. And we all know what the price of, you know, whether it's software or hardware or whatever you're building, you know, engineering talent uh, costs are incredibly high and not incredibly reliable. Um, You know, it takes a a real, it is a real challenge to build a great team. So I think that's a, you know, that's another problematic bias that people say, oh, build a product business. So you're not just trading time for money. I think it's a little bit like renting and buying a home. Either way, you are paying money out the door and you are getting a place to live. And people are like, oh, but a home is an investment. When in fact, you know, if you look statistically at it, with with the exception of a few markets, a few, you know, over a few decades, uh, most of the time you would be better renting and putting the extra money into the public stock market, you know, in an index fund or something where you would make a lot more than the investment you've made in your home. Yeah. And real quick, Rand, let's even talk about numbers. I'm a huge numbers guy with this. Like, let's say you buy a house yeah. for 500,000 and the best case scenario, a couple of years later, you sell it for a million dollars. Well, did you make like $500,000? Like, no, like you're paying your realtor a huge chunk. Then you're going to get this nice little uh, bill uh, at the end of the year, you know, paying a huge percentage on the sale of that house for that for taxes of that profit. So now at the end, yeah, you made a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's awesome. But guess what? Like $500,000 like invested into index funds over time, mm-hmm. like does really well as well. And so there's some things <laughs> yep. too. And I can tell you owning a home down here in Puerto Rico, 
I just went through Hurricane Maria. I would have loved to have been renting during that time. <laughs> you know, I think this is this house is. I, well, let me rephrase that because I never actually looked or thought this house was a quote unquote great investment. But you know, that is one thing that I bought this house because I was like, hey, I'm committing to Puerto Rico, and this is part of what I'm doing. But there's this, you know, every time I look and I see like a smudge on the wall or like a crack in the tile, I'm like, I need to fix that right now. But if I was renting, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's somebody else's problem. So there's just pros and cons to everything in life. So. Get back yeah, to what you're saying. Right? Yeah. I wanted just to jump in there with some real numbers. No, no, that's. Uh, I think that's that's perfect. But the the analogy fits so flawlessly uh, because a, a services business or a consulting business um, can do the, many of the same things that a product business can do. It can scale uh, with decreasing friction over time, right? So you can find great methods to hire people, you know, out of college and turn them into productive consultants. Very quickly, you can add software and processes uh, to your team that will make them more efficient. You can increase your prices. You can get better customers, all these kinds of things, right? The same sorts of things that you do in a product-based business. Now, venture capital loves product-based businesses because unlike services businesses, they do have a one in 100, one in 200 shot at being billion-dollar unicorns. And services businesses almost never do. I think, you know, maybe there there have been a few sales of services businesses in the, you know, quarter billion dollars and up, but but none in the billion dollar category. Uh, certainly not completely self-built by by one person or those kinds of things um, in the last decade anyway. So I, I think that many of the things that Silicon Valley startup culture recommends are designed to give someone a shot at being that billion dollar unicorn. And for most of us, that is the wrong thing to pursue. If you are into pursuing that, great. All the advice, all the advice and, and representation out there is for you. Wonderful. If you're not, you should question why you're doing a lot of the things that you might read about, like, oh, Facebook does this. Mm. I, I should try that. Oh, Google does this. I, I should try that. Oh man, you know, this this really smart entrepreneur who's now a VC at, you know, Andreessen <laughs> Horowitz said I should go you know, try this thing with my startup and that this is the way to get growth. And here's how to think about hiring. And well, maybe that advice isn't necessarily for you. The, uh, the last thing I'll say about services and product is Silicon Valley startup culture hates services revenue so much because of the way public markets value it <laughs> and acquirers value it, that they try not to let it uh, into product businesses at all, oh. right? Your, your investors and lots of the advice out there will bias you against adding adding in consulting revenue. Now, actually, I will say this about Moz's investors. They were thoughtful and savvy about this and did actually recommend like, hey, maybe we should add in some services component, right? We added a customer success team that was very successful. Um, we've talked about adding some some consulting and some services and, um, and I think that's actually gone well. So our, our investors maybe are an exception, but much of the advice out there will bias you to think that you can't combine them and you can. You can combine them in wonderful ways. And a lot of great companies, um, probably most famously recently, is HubSpot, who's, who does a lot of consulting along with a lot of product, even Salesforce. There's a lot of things in there that are services revenue. They just try not to call it that. <laughs> Fire Nation, I want to make something very clear. Don't kid yourself 
at some level, we are always trading time for dollars. So just don't have this, you know, dreamy notion that that just stops happening at some point. We are always doing that at some level, period. And Rand, I loved how you talked about this before, about how you've had some service-based business friends, you know, that might, let's hypothetically say they made $2 million in the course of a year, and then they're comparing themselves to you, and they're like, well, Rand, his company made $50 million. They made $4 million in profit. That's so much better. And you're like, well, wait a second. Like, we made $4 million in profit. That went all back into the business. I'm getting $200,000 of a salary of which I'm having to pay taxes on top of. Um, you could take that $2 million off the table, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Services-based business person, and and go do something. And for instance, like, what am I doing this coming fall? I'm taking a 65-day trip with Kate to Europe, doing 13 countries. I'm, it's nothing Ooh. business-wise. We're literally just traveling Europe. We're taking a 10-day cruise out of Rome. And I don't think you probably would have been able to do that, Ram, when you were the CEO of Moz, you know, making $205,000 a year. Uh, no. <laughs> no. I'm, pretty sure, I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure 65-day uh, trip to Europe is the thing where your investors, you know, your board of directors says, <laughs> that sounds lovely. You get to do that after the exit. Oh my goodness. I love right. all this. And this is what we're doing in Financial. We're just talking about both sides of the coin because so often you just hear one side of the coin. Like we're not saying one way is the best and one way is the worst. We're saying here's all the information. There's there's a, plenty of yeah. cons to my business. I'm not going to lie. We can talk about that sure. too. Right. There's plenty of cons to moving to Puerto Rico. John's, people are like, John, you moved to Puerto Rico, Caribbean, life is good. I'm like, I just went through a category five hurricane. Like my roof ripped off. Like believe me, there's cons to everything you do in life, but there's pros too. So let's talk about both sides of the equations. And one area I can tell you firsthand, Rand, that my audience struggles with and I struggle with is hiring. I mean, it's so hard to hire the right people. And you do this so eloquently in your book, like you talk greatly about how and why so many companies choose the wrong people to hire, but then even worse case, and even more of a head scratcher, why they keep them on the team for so long. So talk about that. Yeah, I think there's this um, inherent belief that a lot of us have that the people we're supposed to hire are the ones who are most talented uh, or have the most experience doing a particular kind of work. And that is certainly one aspect that you can and, and probably should look for, right? So, you know, I'm hiring someone and I want them to, you know, work on our website. And so they need to have web development skills, maybe some design skills and a little bit of JavaScript and these kinds of things. Great, fine. Sounds good. However, however, uh, in my experience, you can get uh, some folks who are very talented at what they do, and they will be very, very poor fits for the company. They won't do a great job of producing what they're supposed to. They have a lot of conflict with you and with other team members. And as a result, you know, productivity and quality of work and what you're paying for is, is not high. On the flip side, I have worked with many people who were probably too junior, right? Like they, they, would, they would be classified as, hey, you're hiring this person. For example, I hired um, a friend of my wife's very early on at Moz. I, I wrote about this in the book, a guy named Ben Hendrickson. And uh, Ben was maybe only a year or two out of college. I think he had worked... Uh, 18 months or two years at Microsoft, you know, pretty junior developer, but a very smart guy. And I asked him like, hey, do you think you could build a clone of Google's web index, which is an insane project? That's, a, that's an insane request, right? <laughs> Google, even at the time had, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of engineers working on this. 
And Ben was sort of like, yeah, yeah, I think I can, I, I can figure that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> We're at a Greek diner, you know, drinking coffee and, and he, he just stares into space and then is like, okay, yeah, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> and, and, and because of a few things, because Ben was very passionate about this project, because he and I got, got along and still get along fantastically well and work really well together um, and know each other quite well and um, have, you know, both personal and professional bonds. And we think a lot of the same ways um, and we share problems openly with each other and we're really good at describing when we're frustrated and why. Um, he's very good at estimates and I'm very good at working with estimates. Because of these sort of these sort of things, the relationship went terrifically well. The project went phenomenally well. Um, you know, he took about a year to build it with with another guy, uh, Nick Gurner, and then uh, a, a month after we launched it, the company was profitable again, right? Because this was such a a huge need in our field. And I think that that one of the things that we forget when we make a hire is, will this person's skills and talent improve? And the answer to that is almost always yes. Will their attitude, will their approach to work, will their relationship, um, will the, the, the working relationship that we have, will their values and what they believe about how work should be done, will those things improve? And that answer is much less certain. Our skills and our talents, as we apply them and use them, they improve. That's what skills and talents do, right? As they get used, it's like a muscle. You know, you go to the gym every day, you work out and <laughs> boy, now you can lift more, right? The same thing is true of your ability to code or program or, or design or do marketing or do operations or handle taxes or whatever it is, right? You get better at things. What you tend not to get better at is sort of, you know, attitude and approach and core values and, and culture fit. Those things tend not to improve. And yet most companies incorrectly hire for talent over sort of values and culture fit. And then when they have some with someone with a culture, you know, core values uh, conflict internally, if that person is talented, they will keep them rather than letting them go, which brings down the whole rest of the team. And if they have the reverse, someone who's, you know, great uh, at, at values, a great culture fit, but doesn't yet have the skills, right? It's taking a while to get the skills they let that person go rather than training them, investing in training them. And in my experience, that that is an incorrect reversal. So there's so many things, Fire Nation, that go into the hiring and the firing of people. But I just love how Rand broke that down. And the two big notes that I took, will this person's skills and talents improve? And the answer is yes. You know, like he said, like going to the gym, you lift every single day, you're going to get stronger. So that's a Yes. But will their attitude and company fit improve? Will it gel more? And that's the big one. And hey, this is a person, Rand, who's done this hiring thing a long time. I mean, if you just throw a number out there, maybe you know exactly, maybe you just know a ballpark, but like how many people have you hired over the course of your career at Moss? Mm, directly, probably in the 60 or 70 range, and then indirectly somewhere in the 400, 450 range. And like what percentage of people would you say that you've kind of been even both directly and indirectly, you know, are still there to this day? Like what's the percentage stick? Pretty low, probably. Let's do this. How about let's say of people that I hired while I was CEO for seven years, um, so from 2007 to 2014, there are still there maybe seven out of you know, 150-ish? Seven out of 150. I mean, Fire Nation, yeah. 
And that's not abnormal. I mean, that is what it looks like. I mean, especially in this generation where we have the millennials coming and, you know, I love millennials. I have them on my show all the time, but guess what? They're not going to stay somewhere. They don't want to stay. Like they're going to uproot. They're going to move. They're going to try something different. They're going to try something new. That's just the thing. I think that I looked and the average job tenure in the Bay Area at technology companies just dipped under um, 11 months. So it's, you know, a little under 11 months that you have your average person working at your, uh, you know, your tech firm uh, in the Bay Area. Now, it's much better in Seattle. I think it's more like almost two years. And I think Moz's average tenure was a little over that, like two and a half, um, maybe two and three quarters, something like that. But of course, you know, uh, what is it, four years since I was CEO. So the average tenure is almost double now. Um, for even the people I hired at the very end. Right. Crazy. Uh, so no surprise that not many are there. So, Rand, I mean, you could write a whole other book just about this one topic. So, maybe just sure. like in one or two sentences, like sum up this area for Fire Nation, like maybe a key takeaway or two that you think could really help entrepreneurs that, you know, are, are looking yeah. into this stuff. First one is have self awareness about yourself and your company so that you can craft questions, interview questions and processes that let you get a look at someone's values and culture fit for your company. And the second one is, if someone is a phenomenal culture fit and they make your team better and people love seeing them at work and you love seeing them, uh, but their productivity and what they're getting done and you know where their skills are at needs work, work on that with them. Mm. Because I guarantee what you're doing now is the reverse. You are working with people on their culture fit and how they're getting along with people. And that is far harder to change than skills and talent. Fire Nation, have self-awareness about yourself and your company. And just remember this, great culture fits win. They just win in the long run. And we have some more value bombs coming your way when we get back from chatting with Billy. Fire Nation, if you don't ever want to worry about your income, you need to acquire skills that solve a serious problem in the marketplace. Right now, there's a major problem every business in the world has, acquiring more customers. This is a skill that these companies will never learn on their own because they're too focused on the gazillion other things going on in their business. This is where you come in. You can acquire the skill set necessary to give the gift of new customers to these businesses through paid ads. It isn't an easy skill to acquire, and that's exactly why it's so valuable. Once you take the time and put in the effort to learn this skill, your craft becomes instantly desirable, and you can command premium dollars in exchange for your time and effort. The best part is, you can start learning how to do this today for free. My friend Billy Jean is a master when it comes to acquiring customers, and he has a free training that will teach you exactly how to do it in any niche. Visit watchbillysvideo.com to access his free training today. That's watchbillysvideo.com in order to acquire a skill set no one can ever take away from you. Ignite. So Rand, we just had a nice chat with Billy. Appreciate that, Billy. I want to kind of dive into a singular focus because we live in a world which I like to call the weapons of mass distraction. They are everywhere. They will take us down. We just can't seem to focus on anything these days. But at the same time, it seems like those that do win at such a high level. But why is that the reason? Why does a singular focus win? Yeah. So uh, when I talk about this in regards to entrepreneurship and building a company, uh, I think that the huge advantage that you get as a very, very focused 
firm, as someone um, who does one thing and does it better than anyone else in the world, is that you get to build brand association uh, and recall and, um, and, and a memory with people uh, that is extremely powerful. And uh, whenever someone has problem X, they always think of your brand, as opposed to you doing 10 different things. And so, you know, people, when they think of X, they think, well, there's a bunch of companies in the space. There's these guys, they're pretty good. They do a bunch of other stuff too. The challenge is trying to build a great brand and build a great product in multiple sectors as opposed to just one. And I see so many entrepreneurs, myself included, and so many companies trying to be everything to everyone, trying to serve you know, their customers with a full suite of products or trying to uh, uh, you know, have a services business that takes care of all their mm. customers' needs as opposed to being best in the world at this one thing. And I think, I think if you can focus, you can actually build a better business. So I love so much about this. Number one, Rand, focus is actually my favorite word in the dictionary. Do you know what my acronym for focus is? Tell me. Follow one course until success. What do you think? I love it. <laughs> you can use it. Just give me I'm credit twice. That. No, give me credit twice. Then it's yours forever. <laughs> <laughs> done, done. And I'm also a huge believer of Fire Nation, what Rand just kind of finished off there with, which is... When you try to resonate with everybody, you will resonate with no one. Go one inch wide and one mile deep. Just get down there and focus, that singular focus and dominate down there. So many people are just trying to spread themselves so thin, going one mile wide and one inch deep in all these areas. And they're like, why aren't I making an impression anywhere? Because you're just going so shallow in all these things. Go deep, go deep. So anything else you want to say about this topic, Rand, before we move on? Yeah, I think uh, you know maybe one one element I would pose to you is if you can regularly, once a quarter, once every six months, uh, look at all the initiatives that you have in your company and in your personal life and find ones to cut out rather than ones to add in, right? Not saying, okay, what else are we going to do next quarter? What are we going to stop doing next quarter? I think that is a really powerful tool to get to focus. Mm. Get to focus. I love that. So a lot of people are talking about growth hacks as the way that you win. You know, people are all trying to like biohack their health, growth hack their company and all these things. And again, there's two sides of the coin. Growth hacks can work sometimes. Biohacking can bring you some good health gains sometimes. But there's also the other side of the coin. And that's what we're talking about a lot today here, Rand, is the other side of the coin. So how can growth hacks bring you failure? And what should we do instead? Yeah. So we, like most startups, like most folks who try to do marketing, um, you know, fell into the trap of pursuing growth hacks relentlessly. And I think the, you know, the thing to remember about a growth hack um, or or any type of hack is it's called a hack for a reason, because you are, because it's it's hacky. It's not a um, it's not a well thought through uh, long term solution. It's something short term that's sort of plugging a hole with your finger, but now your finger is stuck in that hole, and you've got to figure out something else. Um, I I have had plenty of experiences, and I think this is um, you know nearly universally true, almost such to the point that it could be a, a law of marketing that when something short term, you know, when some short term marketing investment. Um, some growth hack works well. Uh, it almost always follows what uh, what the marketer Andrew Chen calls uh, the law of 
he uses a different word, but the law of crappy click-through rates, <laughs> right? And that is essentially when something is very new, right? The first time the popover uh, ad was created for the web, it worked really well, right? The click-through rates were like five or six percent. Everybody's like, what is this? This is so yeah. cool. <laughs> what is this popover? I, I don't get it, right? Or the overlay or the, the negative opt-out overlay, you know, where you have to click, no, I don't want to become a better marketer in order to close the window or, you know, as opposed to saying yes and give you my email. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, whenever any tactic like this emerges, people abuse it, right? They use it and abuse it and then... Uh, uh, consumers get savvy to it, right? People get savvy to it and it loses its effectiveness. And that's sort of that law of crappy click-through rates. And growth hacks are the same way. They tend to be short-term. They tend not to work well. Uh, and so in, in Lost and Founder, I walk through a ton of the most popular, you know, growth hacks, the ones that, um, you know, Hotmail used in their early days or Dropboxes, you know, double opt-in, uh, sorry, uh, uh, double, you know, referral bonus, uh, sign up system or, you know, Airbnb's Craigslist hack or, you know, a bunch of these things, Uber's hacks to, you know, try and defeat Lyft. Um, lots of them are some combination of violating terms of service, you know, questionably ethical, uh, questionably legal. Um, and most of them do follow this law of crappy click-through rates. And the alternative to this, the alternative that, that I propose and that I found to be very effective is to build a great marketing flywheel. A flywheel is something that scales with decreasing friction. And what that means is that when I do it the first time, it's really hard, right? When I make whatever marketing investment, whether that's, well, I'm doing content marketing and blogging, or I'm running a podcast, or I'm, you know, investing in an advertising program, or I'm um, doing partnerships or influencer marketing, whatever it, whatever it is, those uh, investments tend to be really slow to get up and running. But then the next time you do it, the next time you do it, the next time you do it, just like skills and talents, you get better at it. And it has better returns for you at a lower cost. And it, and it, and it doesn't require as long and doesn't require as much effort. That is scaling with decreasing friction. And growth hacks can be awesome when you find a point of friction in that flywheel, right? So there, there's some point in the flywheel where you're just not... You're not getting anything going and you, you, you shove a growth hack in there to make that flywheel turn so that you can turn again more easily the next time. But now you have a flywheel running as opposed to just a growth hack that's going to give out within you know, a few weeks, a few months. So much I love about the book. And one thing I will say, Fire Nation, is that this alone, this flywheel part, this is worth 10 X the cost of the book alone. Like that was the part that I was like taking pictures of and like sending my an email to myself <laughs> to like remind myself because this is stuff that you can apply into your business and just, it, it opened up some new ideas for me. And I just loved that specific section. And I do want to take a minute or two, Ray, to talk specifically about the book. And the first question I have, which I don't ask everybody because frankly, there's not a lot of great book titles out there, but yours is the exception to the rule. And everybody I tell uh, this book about, they're just like, that is such a, Good title, Lost and Founder. How long have you been sitting on that title and where to come from? Like, where was the aha moment? Uh, so my editor and I went back and forth on a lot of titles. What was number two real quick, just before I forget? Like, what was in the number two Ooh. title? Like, I remember, I remember when Tim Ferriss talks about this, he's like, you know, what came in second place for him is like, 
how to sell drugs for money like overnight. It was like something like that because it was, you know, how he did like, you know, brain supplements and stuff like that. And it was like this really horrible title about drugs and money and all this stuff. His, his editor was like, you got to go back to the drawing board on that. But that was like almost the title of the four hour work week. Gosh, mine was something super boring. It was so boring. Even I can't remember. It. So, <laughs> so I think, it, I think it's good that. What was the aha moment for Lost and Founder? Uh, so literally, I just talked to my wife, Geraldine, who Geraldine is a writer, you know, she, um, she wrote this book all over the place that was published last year and and has done well. And um, now is sort of like a, um, a, a very notable person in the, in the in that world. And she instantly came up with Lost and Founder. Just the, that was the first thing she came up with when I asked her for the book title. Uh, I brought it to my editor. She sat on it for probably a few weeks and then came back and said, okay, yeah, this is the best one. <laughs> now, what is your wife's uh, book about? Uh, all over the place. It, so she is, uh, she historically has been mostly a, um, a narrative travel writer. And so all over the place is a narrative travel book. Um, and yeah, it's, it's fun. It's funny. She's a humorist. Um, by profession. And it's, uh, it's, it's been cool to see her career take off. All right, Fire Nation, add these two to the read list, Lost <laughs> and Founder and All Over the Place, which I think I'm gonna have to read uh, before I go on this 65-day jaunt in Europe. Yeah, you'll probably enjoy it. So Geraldine is uh, Italian. She was oh, the cool. first, uh, first person born in her family in, in the United States. And so, you know, grew up speaking Italian and, um, and has a lot of connections to to that country. And, uh, the, the book explores a lot of that, um, you know, sort of new to America, one foot in Europe position. Yeah. So besides what I've already kind of shared and we've already talked about, you know, about how I love how transparent you are about the financial side of things when it comes to actually being, you know, VC backed and da 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 and like the perils of potentially going public and not and taking money and not and services and product based, all this stuff, which is just so fascinating. It's such a good read, Fire Nation. Um, what would you say is just one thing that you think you could tell Fire Nation that they can really get excited about learning from reading the book Lost and Founder? This book is trying to tell a side of the entrepreneurial journey story that most folks would rather keep quiet. So I, I think that you know, 99% of the time when someone's written a book about um, what it's like to build a startup or build a company, uh, it is marketing, right? They're essentially trying to tell you, um, you know, I was down on my luck and I struggled, but then I built something great. And here's how you can too. Right. Now that's I, I think that's the formula for almost every business book in this genre. I'll say ninety-nine percent. Yeah. <laughs> almost everyone. And and Lost and Founder is the absolute opposite. It is here are a bunch of things that we tried that went well. Here are a bunch of things we tried that didn't go well. And the end I think the end might be unsatisfying in a way, but it is also much more realistic. Because I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I've talked to where I see the headline, I see in tech meme or TechCrunch or whatever, you know, X company sells for $75 million, X company, Y company sells for $250 million. And I, you know, I have a relationship with the entrepreneur because, you know, we've been in the startup world together. I email them and I say, hey, man, I hope I can send you congrats. I hope this was a great deal for you. And they'll write back and, and say, oh, I can't say much, but sadly, not really. Ugh. So, and that is that is so common um, that I think the I think the gold rush, right, of startup culture 
um, makes us think that that this is that these outcomes you know produce extraordinary wealth and that they produce the, the, this, these happy stories. Um, and that's so often not the case. And I, I hope I hope this book can help you do two things. One, avoid a lot of the painful missteps um, and lessons. You're gonna you're gonna make your own painful mistakes, but you don't have to make my <laughs> painful mistakes. <laughs> um, and then and then the second thing is, when you encounter that pain, I want you to feel less alone. I want you to know that the rest of us suffer too, right? That we went through the same thing. That we have empathy for you. That there are people out there who you think are incredibly successful, who you model, you know, your business after, just like I did. And then when you find out the truth, it's it's not like that. So that's that's what Lost and Founder is for. So Rand, why don't you just give us as entrepreneurs that are listening right now a parting piece of guidance, and then we'll say goodbye. I would say anytime there is common wisdom or a best practice out there, I have found value in questioning it. Not always doing the opposite, but absolutely in questioning it. And I would urge you to do the same. Mm, I love that. And any call to action or any place you want Fire Nation to learn more about you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you're in the, uh, in the marketing world or if you have marketers on your team, uh, we're building something new. My, my new company is called SparkToro. And you can check us out at sparktoro.com. You, if you have any questions or there's something that I can help you with, um, with regards to anything to do with your journey, uh, at Randfish on Twitter is the best place to hit me up. And Rand, just you know, to kind of chat real quick about your parting piece of guidance. It really does remind me of this Mark Twain quote that I think is really applicable to us, Fire Nation, which is, when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. You know, it doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. But maybe it's just time to take a second, step back and just reflect on where you're at and not just to keep going down this path because the majority is going down this path. And Fire Nation, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You've been hanging out with RF and JLD today. So keep up the eat and head over to eofire.com type a rand in the search bar you'll have a blast if you go back and listen to episode 15 <laughs> i can promise you that because again i wasn't even a published podcast host at that point this is pre-launch when i interviewed rand back in 2012 it was like august i think maybe july of 2012 just insaneness and you'll definitely hear a really a different jld a different skilled host for sure and different different rand a <laughs> different rand too let's be honest and yeah. that was episode 15 oh crazy times and the show notes page is gonna have everything that we talked about um i did tell this to rand i'm gonna say it now like listen you know fire nation time is is, is very valuable i don't have a ton of time i probably read five to ten percent of the books of the people that i interview and, and you know that's a lot because i interview a lot of people. Um, and, and Rand's is one of those that I started reading and I just didn't stop. And I read it from cover to cover. And that's why I was fired up to get him on to talk about this because it is a ins inspiring read on so many different levels. So Lost and Founder, definitely check that out. And I'm going to be checking out All Over the Place uh, by Geraldine as well. That's going to be cool before my trip, etc. So that'll be a fun time as well. And Spark Toro is where Rand's doing all his greatness now. So get on over there, Spark Toro, and see what's going on in his world. And Rand, I want to thank you, brother, for getting on, sharing your truth with Fire Nation today. For that, we salute you and we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks, John. Take care. Hey, Fire Nation. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Rand today. 
And if you're wanting to accomplish a big goal, well, you should because goals are so key. The Freedom Journal will give you a step-by-step process, a proven process that I created to accomplish your number one goal in 100 days. So just visit thefreedomjournal.com. Use promo code podcast for a nice little discount and thank you for listening to my podcast. And I will catch you there, Fire Nation, or I'll catch you on the flip side. Fire Nation, if you don't ever want to worry about your income, you need to have skills that solve a serious problem in the marketplace, like helping businesses acquire more customers. This is a skill that most companies will never learn on their own because they are too focused on the gazillion other things going on in their business. My friend Billy Jean is a master when it comes to acquiring customers and has charged up to $30,000 a month to provide this simple but not easy service. To learn how you can do this too, visit Watch Billy's video.com to access his free training today.